stay tuned for the organic farm stand coming right up. Corn in the fields, and listen to the rice when the wind blows across the water. King harvest is surely come. I work for the union, cause she's so good to me. The Organic Farm Stand is coming at you one more time. Uh, Laura Modlin, how are you doing? Good. How are you, Richard? I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well, considering that uh, it is the first day of February. Yeah. And that means we got through January. So we survived the maybe perhaps the toughest week, uh, month of winter. I'm not sure. The, day, the, the month of winter with the shortest days, for sure. Yeah, yep, 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 yep. And uh, when we get to the solar lunar report, which is coming right up, we're going to find out how much daylight we have regained. Aha, uh-huh. yeah. Hey, Steve Munno out there on Masawa Farm, how's it going? It's going great. Glad to be here with you. Yeah. And okay. how was your how was your January? Uh, January, you know, it was a mix of things. Uh, it, happily, it had some real cold in it. You know, we had previously had, you know, a, our first month of some winter in December with not much winter in it, but we got some real cold. There was a, a solid layer of ice across the farm with brief bits of snow on top. Um, so, you know, we need cold as part of it, even if we don't always enjoy it. And there are challenges that it causes, I would say, particularly in uh, managing livestock, there can be challenges with that, but um, happy to have some cold and, and hope that there is, you know, some more snow and cold in our future. As much as I'm welcoming spring in the not too distant future, I'd, I'd love for February to have a little bit of snow. Okay. And we're going to find out what, uh, why that's a good thing when you do your report coming right up. Yeah. So yeah, um, let us turn to Laura Modlin with the Solar Lunar Report. Okay, so, you know, I have to say, we're, our days are getting longer, the sunlight, um, and I know I should be happy, but I keep experiencing this anticipatory grief, because I know that the days are getting longer, only to be cut off in a few months, and get shorter again. I know, that's that's like really... On, Ju- 
that's that's uh i'm not sure is that ocd we're talking about i'm not is that uh so, <laughs> it's ocd but it's 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 a little i don't know it's a little whatever but um so <laughs> today i i totally identify with that by the way so do you you understand that because we've talked about how um the the you know the the um winter solstice is more cheerful than the summer solstice because the after the winter solstice the days are getting longer that's right yeah. all right well how so, much daylight have we regained so in the last two weeks since the um january 18th show does anyone want to guess um since the Jan january 18th show you said oh in two weeks the last two weeks last two weeks um, Last time I was pretty close. I'm going to say 29 minutes. Oh, my God. Did you look this up? It's no, I did not. I did 27 not. minutes. Okay. I was You're two so uh, close. I was two minutes off last time. So that's... Um, Today, okay. I am so happy we've crossed the 10-hour mark of daylight. We have today 10 hours and four minutes on today, Thursday. Um, the sunrise is was at 7.04 a.m. and the sunset will be at 5.08 p.m. So, mm. so it's after five, but it's been, it, it hasn't been dark by five in any, for a while now. Yeah, okay, that's that's the twilight that we've all, you know, it took us a while to get that into the into the program, but now we, uh, we do acknowledge twilight. And so that gives, twilight gives you another half hour probably, it's right? It's true, it, it is, yeah. it's true. And um, and so we gained 27 minutes, and for the next show, which is February 15th, we'll, it's going to increase you again, and we'll gain 34 more minutes. Uh, fantastic. Okay. So it's it's really great, because I am savoring those uh, extra extra minutes. And now that it's, you said sunset is actually 508? Wow. 508, yeah, tonight. Yep, that's um, fabulous. That's which really is great because and then so you know it will be after 5 30 before it gets dark dark mm -hmm. right good work laura i mean i know your report isn't over yet but uh, thank you for the the extra daylight appreciate it i didn't have anything to do with it but i appreciate that thank you <laughs> um and so we have but then i have to like report these things we have 46 days until spring when we have roughly 12 and 12 that's march 19th um and we have 140 days until the summer solstice and we have only 28 days until leap day february 29th because um you know i want to keep reminding people we have 29 days this month this year because it's leap year um and the North American total solar eclipse is now 69 days away on April 8th. Um, and let's see. Oh, but here's something much sooner is that Friday is Groundhog Day, February 2nd. And um, if Phil does see his shadow, which means which happens when the sun is shining, um, winter will not end early and we'll have another six weeks of it but if phil does see his shadow we'll have an early spring um according to farmers almanac they predict no early end to winter and punxsutawney phil has about a 39 percent accuracy rate um, 
and it's pathetic. <laughs> and it's predicted to be cloudy early on Friday when he comes out, so there should be no shadow. And according to him, it'll be an early spring. <laughs> so I predict. I predict. And according to him. And February 2nd is also the last quarter moon. So a little bit more about the February sky. If on February 7th to 11th, if you look south at about 9 p.m., um, it'll be especially striking because there'll be no bright moon because it'll be pretty close to the new moon. Um, there's going to be what they're calling the great winter hexagon, which will be... Um, which will be seven stars forming a giant football in the sky. <laughs> um, is, is, it, is that exciting? Just in that, time for the Super Bowl, I guess, right? Is it? Yeah, I think you're right. Um, maybe that's why they're, well, it's called a hexagon, but um, so that's February 7th to 11th. So next week, the end of next week at about 9 p.m. when not, Richard will be awake. Uh, <laughs> um so february 9th is the new moon and we're only two new moons away from the great north american total solar eclipse and actually april's new moon is the day of the eclipse the april 8th um so a couple more things february 14th is not just valentine's day there there's something they're calling sky lovers where the crescent moon is going to kiss jupiter and so if you look southwest at twilight, as it starts to get dark, Jupiter will be on the upper left of the moon. February 24th is the full snow moon. So we have to see if we'll actually have any snow by then. Um, and that's my report. Nicely done. Nicely done as usual. So um, we have potential for... Well, we, we have basically contradictory predictions. Ponsatoni Phil is predicting probably an early spring. Farmers right, all because it's supposed back. to actually be snowing Friday morning in in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I don't think he's going to see a shadow. Yeah. All right. Farmers all like anyway. Let me just quickly say about our guests today. Oh yeah, thank you. Before, I was going to ask. Before yeah. we go on to our reports, um, it's as if we need another reason to feel lucky to live in Connecticut. We have a farmer who grows cut flowers with no chemicals, which is highly unusual, and um, and she's growing tulips for for this winter, and we're going to hear more about all of that at the half hour with what's the guest name oh miranda gould <laughs> lovely miranda gould she's miranda gould person. fantastic all right yeah that's going to be a great a great segment all right so let us turn to the small farm report with steve mono out there at massaro farm steve we were just talking about the winter and you know will it be long will it be short but tell us uh to start your report why you do appreciate the cold snaps that we get. I mean, perhaps less frequently than uh, a couple of decades ago, but wh why are they important to a farmer and uh, also just to all of us, given the issue of uh, insects and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, so, so one of the things, uh, you know, for a vegetable grower, you know, uh, 
like we do here at Masaro, um, pests are a concern. And, you know, the way that our season has been extending on, bo on both ends um, has allowed certain insects to sort of extend their life cycle as well, to be present earlier in the season and later in the season. Um, you know, and this goes not just to pests that might attack our crops, but also, you know, we know that the tick season is extending into the spring and in the fall because it's it's warmer longer in the season. And we really need these cold snaps and cold spells um, to to sort of cut them off and kill off some of the um, the bugs that are living in and not allow for, you know, another generation uh, of, of the insects and pests to to thrive. So um, it's really helpful for us to have these cold snaps. Um, you know, we talk about welcoming a break for the winter and sort of putting the farm to rest. But the, the truth is for us here, we grow year round. So there's not a real break, you know, um, people eat year round. We want to grow year round and maintain our customer base and keep people involved with us. So we really don't stop here. And I know uh, lots of growers, you know, are taking advantage of that sort of season extension to then turn that into a year round growing. So you know, I've talked a lot over the years on, on the program here about our high tunnels. And, and initially it started with trying to get a few weeks extra in the spring and in the fall, but now it's really year round growing. So we are, we still have um, right now carrots, kale, collards, uh, lettuce, arugula, salad mix, all growing in our high tunnels that we're harvesting, you know, every week or every other week, uh, depending on conditions to bring to our farmer's market and to have to our farm stand. Um but we do want some of those cold snaps to kind of, uh, yeah, kill off some of the the insects that might be trying to extend their life cycles. And we also, you know, having a, a snow cover can be really helpful for us as well. You know, it can be helpful for the nitrogen in the soil. So we've got nitrogen in the atmosphere that gets uh, that, that sort of comes into the snow, and then we'll move into our soil, which will is a sort of key to our uh, growth of some of our crops. But it's also just a protective layer. Um, for the for the soil, so you know we we are trying to protect the soil with our cover crops and having some living cover there. In the winter, much of it's dormant, and in this time, like we had in December and much of January, where there wasn't snow, uh, and it wasn't cold enough, we were in sort of an early mud season. Um, you know, we typically don't have mud season until later March, early April, when we're thawing out from winter and there's no more uh, snow cover and it can be a little bit of a rough time uh, and, and that can be damaging to the soil, but snow would provide us a protective layer there. Uh, you know, in addition to the green living cover and cover crop that we have there or any of the cover crop that might've been killed off by frost, snow would provide that uh, protective layer for our soil, but lacking that, um, you know, there's potential for erosion issues throughout the farm. Um, and then it's just, it's harder to move around uh, a, a muddy, you know, not quite frozen farm than it is, a, you know, a, a sort of colder landscape. So, you know, previous winters where it's been consistently cold, you know, you have sort of a firm ground. Uh, but now as we move around, it, it's it's saturated, it's muddy, you know, so we're disturbing that top layer even at, at this time of year when we'd really like to be uh, not disturbing it. You mentioned that you're growing year-round now. What crops do you grow year-round? And what, if any, artificial or, you know, heating is required in the high tunnels to keep the thing going? Uh, is it all solar heating or do you have to actually heat the high tunnels? 
we we don't use any supplemental heat so the only heat we're getting is just you know the the sun coming through um the single layer of plastic we have covering the greenhouse and that heat getting trapped in there you know and then when the sort of earth gives off its heat you know it gets trapped back in there through that as uh, through that layer of plastic as well so um one can use supplemental heat some people do that in their in their high tunnels when people grow in heated greenhouses but we strategize to grow crops that don't require any other um supplemental heating so we're really doing our planting in late summer and fall to get the crops established and then harvesting them throughout the winter and understanding that we're not going to get much growth or regrowth of the crops from mid late november until you know early february mid february the crops are really sort of waiting for those longer days to respond and start their regrowth but by getting them established in late summer and fall they've got a healthy root system uh and then they can really take off in the spring so you know we um if we start crops now, it'll take quite a bit longer to bring them to harvest. Whereas the the lettuce we have planted, you know, has got a little little bit of a root base and is ready to take off as soon as the days um, uh, start to lengthen a bit. So that's the basis of what we've got. You know, lettuce, kale, arugula, collards, salad mix. We've had radishes at times. Um, we've grown overwintered onions in our tunnels and out in the field. We've got carrots, which are basically full grown, but we're storing them in the ground. So rather than harvesting them and keeping them in our cooler, um, we can use the earth in that way and, and just pick them as needed. And, and so we're doing a fresh harvested carrot for our, for our markets uh, and our farm stand throughout the winter, basically until they're gone. So until they've sold out. So we're you know, rather than storing them and using, again, fossil fuels and the energy of our cooler to keep them cold, um, we're keeping them in the ground. Uh, um yeah i was there last week at your farm stand and you have beautiful carrots the carrots are beautiful and there was uh like three varieties of kale and arugula and garlic and um so so you seem to have a good stock of stuff um when you're talking about if with the warm days and the bugs coming these are all cold weather crops um how do they interact with these insects? Well, you know, our, our crops are now are inside the tunnel. And so there, there's, you know, we're doing in-ground growing there. This is, you know, real soil that we're planting into. It's not, um, you know, a hydroponic environment. It's not um, a soilless environment. So, you know, um, pests uh, of all kinds, you know, including, you know, um, smaller creatures, you know, want to move in there as well. They want to go into a warm and protected space and they live in the soil. I mean, just as we have beneficials in the soil, we've got, you know, uh, worms in the soil that are, are beneficial, but there's also, you know, bugs that then lay their eggs that then can hatch, um, you know, and, and grow out onto our plants. So, you know, an example for us, we used to grow a lot of spinach over winter. It's a really great winter crop. Um, but we started to see a pest um, sort of extend its life and be a real problem. And that was the leaf miner. And a leaf miner, um, 
but it, it, it sort of, it does mine the leaf. It's sort of, their eggs are laid on the underside of the leaf, of the spinach leaf. And then when it hatches, um, the larva kind of burrow into the leaf and creates like a little pattern in there that looks like it's mining. And that's why it gets its name, the leaf miner. Um, and it makes a little translucent trail as it eats throughout the spinach. Uh, and on a plant like spinach, one, once that's happened, it's really not marketable. I mean, I, I can use it, but people don't really want to eat that. It will also impact our beets and our chard, which are of the same uh, family. But, um, you know, those we can we can take off a, a leaf, you know, um, from a beet and still have a marketable beet. Uh, but in the spinach, it really decimates the crop. So we had years of really wonderful overwintered spinach, but we stopped growing it because uh, of the impact of those leaf miners kind of living in the soil in our tunnels and then emerging over the winter where, you know, or earlier uh, than it would uh, in the spring outside because the conditions are more favorable or living longer into the fall and getting established there. Um, again, because it's more favorable inside the the tunnel than it is outside, and it stopped being a viable crop for us. So, uh, for those who still remember that we did that, it's it's probably been five or six years since we've grown any overwintered spinach, and um, we've really cut that out of our of our program now. Um, so so that we can have beets and chard in the spring and summer that aren't impacted by that pest as well. Is there no natural uh, antidote for those? Not a very effective one. No. I mean, there are, you know, that we've talked a little bit in the past about some organic remedies for this, you know, you know, in the basic way, obviously you, you want to have a healthy, healthy soil and a healthy plant. Um, and then exclusion is one of the, the best ways to try to keep them off. Um, so we use that, uh, a layer of row cover and that tries to keep, you know, any kind of pest from, from getting onto your crop and then maybe laying their eggs. But once there's, uh, eggs in the soil and they emerge, you know, even if you've got a layer of, of cover on, it doesn't matter because they're coming from up, uh, from, from the soil they're coming. So you, you can't exclude them once there's a sort of population there. Um, but if you take away their, their sort of favored, uh, meals, you know, or, or you change the family, you know, that, that leaf miner that affects the spinach doesn't eat our lettuce and doesn't eat our kale. Um, mm. there are, there are leaf miners that eat brassicas. There are other things that eat the lettuce, but, um, that particular pest does not, uh, the sort of spinach leaf miner does not eat those other crops. So we've cut out the spinach. We've increased the other crops, uh, from different families. And though we miss the spinach, you know, those are the, just the trade-offs that we've had to make. What is the benefit or of worms? I, I mean, I know from childhood, I remember, oh, worms are great. We love to have them in our soil. They, they increase something in the soil. What, what about worms is good? Well, I, this should be a moment where I should say we should have someone else on the show to talk about that. I, I can speak to it, but we've had, I think, I want to say we've had Monique Bosch on here before, and I don't want to transition too far out of the way, but, you know, Monique Bosch has uh, got a, uh, a worm business and a worm composting business here in Connecticut and Westport, and she's also worked with Connecticut NOFA 
Uh, and the reason I'm mentioning that now is because I don't want to forget to say that one of the key winter things we do is, you know, learn and share with each other. And we do have the winter conference coming up uh, oh, yeah. at the end of winter. Uh, I believe the date is March 23rd at Eastern Connecticut State. Uh, and I know Monique is going to be doing some worm workshops there and in the past has done some uh, great microscopy work where you can look at your soil under a microscope. Uh, and so that's really the best way to do it. But but generally, you know, the uh, the worms and, you know, other sort of fungal life, bacterial life and invertebrates in the soil, you know, they're part of a healthy soil ecosystem. You know, they are, the, the worms are making nice tunnels through the soil as they move, which are, you know, create important pathways for roots to grow and for water to travel. And of course they're eating and recycling materials in the ground too. So they're breaking down, uh, you know, smaller bits uh, of uh, organic matter into even smaller bits. So, so they're sort of really key along uh, the, um, the sort of soil food web of what's happening there. But uh, there are some folks, some great folks in the state who can speak better to uh, worm impact than I can. So maybe, maybe there's a future date for us. Indeed. All right. That's very cool. All right. So Steve, thank you so much. Steve Mono from Masaro Farm with the Small Farm Report. And now let us welcome to the show for the monthly Honeybee Report, Vincent Kay from Swords into Plowshares Honey. Vincent, are you with us? I am. Can you hear me? <laughs> yes, 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 we can. Thank you. And um, what's happening out in the woods right now, um, uh, minus the cold weather, it, it feels like uh, winter for sure. Um, things are light dependent. Um, and you're getting a slow trickle of birds uh, coming back into the area. Uh, believe it or not, migrating north. I don't know why during that cold spell. I saw so many robins and other birds hmm. huddled up uh, under my holly bushes, um, and now all the berries are gone, which is great. But in the woods in general, um, things are getting sparse food-wise. Um, the berries are disappearing from the autumn olive, and the blue cedar berries are gone, and even the bittersweet and, and the, uh, uh, the, um, the rose, the, uh, the invasive rose bush there that, with all the prickers on it, uh, the... Um, that's that's losing all of its berries. So everything is eating. Um, I'm mentioning all of these berries because these are th some of the things that the bees do like to forage on during the season. And I always underscore the importance of letting things bloom so that there is the food supply for pollinators and birds in our environment. Um, I think sometimes we get a little crazy with the mowing and the weed whacking, and uh, it's a time to kind of take stock into looking at uh, uh, you know, perhaps redefining the American lawn a little bit and uh, understanding that uh, having something so trimmed is not always the healthiest environment for critters and especially honeybees and pollinators. But um, right now in the fields, uh, we've been checking our bees. Um, uh, we wish it was a little colder also for a different reason, but one of the reasons um, is that we wish the bears would, um, black bears, would go into hibernation um, because they're still prowling around and testing our fencing, our electric fencing, solar electric fences. Um, and of course, we haven't seen the sun in over two weeks. So um, we're driving around checking batteries on the solar fences because uh, solar needs the sun to recharge them. And so they're not always as strong as we wish they were to protect the beehives. But um, some, you know, we've done okay. We, we've had some winds, so the winds do some damage. 
um, by knocking down trees and branches onto the fences. But so far, the beehives have done very, very well. Um, and we're not feeding sugar syrup um, now. Um, if anything, we're feeding fondant, which is a type of um, pastry cream, uh, sugar fondant. Um, it, it's a kind of a paste, and it doesn't have a lot of moisture, which is good because moisture will chill the inside of the hive. And of course, when it goes below freezing, create ice inside the hives, which we don't want. Um, the bees are not really laying, the queen bee is not really laying eggs yet, um, but she's starting to think about it, I think. <laughs> and, um, as the days get a little longer, you'll see a small pattern starting. And then the, the, the center of that nest where she is laying the eggs goes up um, to 95 degrees at the center to incubate those eggs and the larva for new bees, which are replacing the older bees that are dying off naturally inside the hive, just their, their time has, has come. Um, and so what happens is they've been incubating the hive and creating a cluster which insulates everyone else, but the outer layers start dying off and are replaced by these new bees that the queen is starting to lay now or very soon. Um, I will say to other beekeepers now, and especially in February and early March, is the time to really keep an eye on food because to create that temperature of 95 degrees, they go, they consume an awful lot of food. Now, of course, we always leave them all the fall flowers, um, all the nectar from the fall flowers for the bees to gather and store away for their winter food. But we also supplement that if needed with sugar syrup and of course now fondant. But as it, it gets um, a little, uh, closer to spring and the weather uh, gets warmer, um, they will start laying more eggs. And of course they will incubate at a higher temperature and, and that increases and increases sort of like the sorcerer's apprentice and the, uh, it just goes, gets larger and larger the, the size of the cluster and hopefully they make a honey crop. But um, that's sort of what's going on inside the hive now. Um, uh, you'll see little wax chips at the entrance because the bees are gnawing through the honey that they've stored in the hive. And so those wax chips fall to the entrance. Um, you'll see dead bees in front of the hive. That's completely normal because um, the bees are very clean. They don't like um, to have dead bees inside the hive. So the ones that do die off from the cold are taken out by um, the undertakers, they call them. Um, <laughs> certain bees pass through certain stages in their life. And one of the stages is to clean the hives and actually take the dead bees out. So you'll see a a bee struggling like crazy to pull a, a bee that's half stuck in the entrance out. And it's kind of comical, but it's also kind of sad and endearing and, and lovely in its own way because they really are very clean. And, um, but you'll see these, these dead bees in the snow and, and uh, in the ice. And it's not to be alarmed. I mean, if you saw a huge, huge pile, so that's a different issue. But these are just kind of a general um, ongoing uh, uh, house cleaning uh, of sorts. And uh, of course, if, if you see mouse damage or anything like that, you want to make sure that those are not in the hive. But the main thing is to monitor food. And as it gets a little bit, um, uh, a little bit warmer, what we do, and we know the bees are, are incubating brood, we um, will put a sheet of black tar paper on top of the hive, and that's just a kind of a, a little trick to to uh, heat up the metal hive lid um, and give them a helping hand and. and uh, not having to consume so much of their food, but 
to give a little more heat from the sun uh, if we ever get it. <laughs> we're, we're really uh, jonesing for some sun right now. Yeah. yeah, really. It's been January. That's one thing about January is we've had a lot of rain and we've had very few sunny days. But Vincent, a couple of questions. First of all, yeah. what about rain? Is that create issues for beekeepers in the you know in, the, in these cold months the rain itself it's like if you were riding a bicycle and it started to rain um and your clothing got wet um you would be chilled you would be cold even if, if, if it was a warm day you'd probably be cold even with the slightest breeze so you want to make sure that the hives are of course um waterproof and that's what the the, the metal um galvanized tin lids are are for to keep them to keep them dry that's that is an issue um and you also have to have the tin lid propped open a little bit but not too much because again you don't want to have them use up too much food to you know um you know with cold blasting through the hive but you do want to have it cracked open a little so that the moisture from uh, one of the byproducts of consuming honey and the bee's metabolism is carbon dioxide, which when it hits the surface, turns to water. And so that water can drip back onto the bees inside the hive. So you want to have um, the lid cracked open just a little bit so that the, the air can circulate and move and get rid of some of that moisture. Now, one of the other factors which goes along with moisture is wind. And uh, some of the windstorms we were kind of getting a little worried about um, for a variety of reasons, but wind chill, um, imagine again, a, a wet clothing on a bicycle as you're riding, um, and especially if you're riding fast, it will, it will just chill you. And it's the same thing with, with any kind of living creature. So uh, wind chill is a big factor. So we're, we're glad we're sort of out of that pattern for the moment, anyhow. And last uh, question for you, Vincent, you, you talked about the bears and the fact that they're uh, roaming and marauding. <laughs> how, how has that changed over the, let's say, decade or two? Well, actually, you've been at this for 40 years. So, I mean, in terms of the, the way that climate has actually evolved, changed, probably, I would say, in a more uh, detrimental fashion, how has how is, how is bear activity changed for you over the, over the decades in the wintertime? That's a great question. It's actually kind of humorous too, because I think this is kind of the the southern tier where they might go into hibernation or they might not. So Connecticut's in that part of the temperate zone that, you know, the, I mean, northern Connecticut gets colder, but down on the shoreline here, it doesn't get that colder. But now that there's bears here, when they don't hibernate, they tend to just um, wander around. And we can see that the effects of of the bears, we drive through neighborhoods and we see all the bird feeders bent over. <laughs> and some of them have, you know, the bird feeders are on pretty sturdy um, uh, poles and contraptions that people have put up to, against the bears. But the bears do a number on these uh, on these uh, bird feeders. Uh, I think over the years, to be quite honest with you, and we've had that uh, luxury of, well, we, we didn't have the luxury in the beginning, but the bears have, a, I think, are very smart animals. And I always look back to antiquity and, and how they've used bears in circuses because they're highly trainable and they're very smart and um, smarter than dogs. They're just way up there on the, on the cognition level. But I think that um, we've had the um, time 
and the good fortune of being able to be supplied with really state-of-the-art solar um, electric fencing, um, which really wallops them when they do touch it. And they have learned over a period of time to stay away from our fences and our bees. And we know this because we have cameras set up in some of our bee yards and we see the bears circling the fences. Uh, and they just, they look like, oh, I wish we had a beehive to destroy, but they can't get at them. And it's the funniest thing because they just, you know, they just roam around the electric fence and it's like, okay, then they finally leave. So I think um, to get back to your question um, over the years, um, with bears, I don't think they, they go into hibernation in this part of Connecticut at all, not unless we have a good solid month of cold weather. Uh, we haven't had that and uh, below freezing and, you know, we haven't had ponds freeze where um, there's not an available source of food for them. And one of the whole reasons that they hibernate is because everything locks up. They can't fish, they can't forage in, in streams and whatnot. So, I mean, it, they, they, they feast heavily in the fall before hibernation. And that's the time to make sure all of our fences are working. And we do. Um, but at the same time, we know that they're not going to go into hibernation down here. Very good. Vincent Kay, swords into plowshares, honey. Thank you so much for your report. Always great Thank to you, hear from you. Yeah. Thanks, Vincent. We'll talk to you again next month. Great. Thank you. All right. Take care. And now, Laura, why don't you introduce our special guest? Yeah. So, um, Flowers bring cheer to people, and they've also come to symbolize Valentine's Day and love. And what people um, perhaps don't realize is that the cut flower industry is the is is said to be the biggest um, consumer of pesticides. And um, our our guest Miranda Gould and her husband Cam, who run the New Petal Flower Farm in Monroe are fighting against that by um, growing cut flowers that have no chemicals. And um, this, this winter, they are offering tulips that they're growing in their basement. And I am very interested to hear how that's going. Welcome, Miranda. Tell us, how are your, um, your tulips? Are they growing well in the basement? Hi, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, they're growing really well. So what I, you know, I've been growing flowers for over a decade um, and always, you know, using organic practices and methods and really trying to keep, you know, any kind of sprays, any even organic sprays um, to a, a real bare minimum. Um, when you grow flowers, you realize how many pollinators are coming and feasting on those flowers. And so to spray anything on them just feels wrong. Um, and, you know, even just growing some zinnias in your own yard, you can kind of come to appreciate that, I think. So, um, but yeah, I mean, the <laughs> it's always been a little bit funny to me that the biggest flower holiday is in winter. In yeah. year. Um, and so I was really intrigued when I found this class called the Tulip Workshop which is an online class. And it was these two women um, who were forcing tulips through the winter in Vermont and upstate New York. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> if they can get flowers to bloom in super cold climates, um, you know, and I can learn how to do that, that would be 
amazing because, you know, everyone gets, as we were saying, a little dreary in January and February. They're kind of long months to get through for the average person. And there's a lot of, you know, seasonal depression and all that. Um, And so it seems like, you know, no better time to have fresh flowers that are alive and growing just on your kitchen table. So um, I took that class um, and, you know, started forcing the tulips and yeah, they're growing, they're growing in the basement. It actually, this is just such a perfect um, example of how growing is always unpredictable. <laughs> um, the Our basement, um, so, okay, general rule of thumb, the warmer the temperature is, the faster they will grow and bloom. That's kind of goes for growing anything, veggies or flowers, but especially with the tulips, they are a cool weather crop. They really like growing cool. And um, our basement is usually at around 60 degrees, but once we added all the lights and things down there, it ended up being really more around mid 60s or even upper 60s. So things have been growing really fast coming in much sooner than I anticipated. So yeah, we have like thousands of tulips right now down there. So I read that you're growing your tulips so they'll last a long time um, at people's homes, which is very nice because sometimes you get flowers and they probably traveled from like Brazil or something and um, they're gone in a few days. About how long do you think your tulips will last once they're cut? So I cut all my tulips at the ideal stage, which is a little bit different for each variety. Um, But generally speaking, you want to pick them when they're still closed. They're showing a little bit of color, but they're not fully open yet. Um, And so, you know, and a tulip, when they're blooming, they have to be harvested every couple hours because they can blow open just in the blink of an eye. So um, we harvest them at the correct stage and then they go into the cooler until they wind up on your kitchen table. So, you know, all those things considered, they should last around two weeks in the vase. It really, there is a a huge, um, it depends how warm you keep your house. So the warmer you keep your house and if you put the flowers in, you know, direct sun and next to a heater, they're not gonna last as long. But if you keep them cool and you keep them out of direct sunlight, the cooler your house, the longer you'll, the flowers will keep. And, you know, just giving the stems um, a recut on the bottom inch every other day, refreshing the water, clean water, and recutting the stems is, is huge into getting them to last longer. I think one of the big reasons that the flower industry is so addicted to chemicals, one of them, is they're trying to make this product last for longer. It's it's a living thing. It's like produce, right? And so they, and if it's being harvested in Ecuador, and then it has to get from that farmer to the distributor, then onto a plane, then onto the next distributor, then to the grocery store. So a lot of flowers that you find at the grocery store have been harvested weeks ago. Um, And so, you know, most large suppliers of flowers use floral additives um, to get the flowers to last longer. Um, That's just kind of the industry standard. So um, we never use any flower food. We don't use any any chemicals to get the flowers to last longer. Um, The harvest stage is really the best 
way to get them to last longer that along with clean vase recutting we want people to have fresh flowers we don't want people to, to have old flowers how do you force the growing as you i think you used that word in your basement how does it how does it happen how do you make it work yeah so i think you know if anyone is is interested in doing this they should definitely take the class called the tulip workshop um it is really, really complicated. And so, you know, I can give you the bird's eye view, which is basically, um, it's really simple when you think about it. M many perennials are like this. They need a winter to vernalize and to produce a, a flower the following spring. Mm -hmm. um, and so basically what we're doing with the bulbs is we're just faking a winter and faking a spring. So, you know, you can use the cooler to um, fake the winter. And then when you bring them into the grow space, you're essentially baking a spring. What's the actual condition that you're bringing them into that makes them, you know, actually sprout and begin to uh, grow? Basically, it's like the warmth of, of our basement is one thing that causes them to grow. And then just the grow lights. So we have like LED grow lights that are over all of the tulips. Tell us a little bit about how did you encounter the concept and practice of organic growing and consuming? Yeah. So, I mean, growing up, my mother was, she, she was a cook, like a, a personal chef. And she was always just always into organics and kind of that side of the food world. Um, and when I was doing my AmeriCorps program, um, I was up in Maine and we, one of the things I did was create a community garden um, and we utilized some uh, people from the UMaine uh, Master Gardeners program to, to help us with the community garden because I had never grown anything. I didn't know what I was doing. So it was my job to like get volunteers to come and teach everyone and um, work with the elders there. So that's kind of how I got into it. And, you know, Maine is like a bastion of organic vegetable farming. There's so many amazing seed companies there, Johnny's, Fedco. Um, there's the Maine Common Ground Fair. So it just, you know, one thing led to another. And I became mm -hmm. obsessed with all yeah. that. Uh, Laura, Steve, do you have any question for uh, Miranda? Well, yeah. Um you, I know you have CSAs all year round. Um, you have them spring, summer, fall, um, and those are outdoors, correct? And um, so, so when you move outdoors, are you preparing the ground now for when you'll be there? Are you doing anything to prepare for the um, spring flowers? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of spring flowers are perennials that need to be planted either the fall before or, you know, several years before. So things like um, Japanese anemone, well, they're not spring blooming, they're fall blooming, but they're a perennial, um, lily of the valley, peonies, things like that. So yeah, every fall, fall is an extremely busy time for us because we're planting all of these perennials and we're also planting, you know, thousands of tulip bulbs and daffodils. And in addition to doing the indoor tulips, we also do field tulips that, that kind of rounds out the end of the season for us. Um, 
This past winter, we also put up a unheated, a small unheated high tunnel. Um, it's really small. It's only like 14 by 30 feet. <laughs> but we have, so in December, I started sprouting my anemone and ranunculus corms. And so those are all planted in the unheated high tunnel now. Um, so those will be kind of the next thing to bloom after the indoor tulips is the, all those things in the high tunnel. Um, and then, yeah, a lot of perennials outside. And they're all also what you call um, hardy winter annuals that a lot of them can be sown basically around now indoors. And then they get planted outside as soon as the ground thaws, usually like end of March, early April. Um, and so those, most of those will be things that will start blooming from like June through July. So our CSAs, we have our winter tulip CSA, then we have, um, yeah, spring, summer, and fall, so through uh, October. And you grow, and you you plant, you said you plant only native um, plants, the seeds for native plants. Um, so not, not only natives, but yeah, we do have a lot of native plantings around our farm. Um, my husband, Cam, that's like really his thing, and he's just constantly planting more, 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 <laughs> lots of wild areas. Um, and I do cut from it for some of the arrangements, but not all of it. Um, so yeah, we have, you know, both perennial herbaceous native plants and also like bushes, like nine bark and viburnum and stuff like that. Do you? I'm curious if you just have have a favorite, you know, flower you're looking forward to for this year, you know, having gone through a number of years of growing, you know, and preparing for this season, what you're, yeah, what you're looking forward to? What are your favorites? And that's like so impossible. I, I, I do, I mean, you know, the tulips are really special. Um, I appreciate the indoor forcing because usually with field tulips, they're blooming, you know, for a week, maybe two weeks, and then they're done, they're over. And so, and it's such an incredible flower with an incredible vase life and just like the varieties you can get are crazy. Um, so I really love how you can just extend that season and have them for several months at a time using this method. Um, I would say anemone, both the spring blooming anemone and the fall blooming Japanese anemone are like one of my personal favorites. Mm. But uh, it's like asking who's your favorite child. <laughs> <laughs> I love them all. I love the scented flowers. I love stock, um, you know, hyacinth, sweet peas, all those. That's another thing that, you know, you can't find at the grocery store, those scented flowers, because by the time they've gotten to you, they've sat around and they don't really smell like anything anymore. Mm. Are tulips, are they visited by pollinators? I mean, like, what's the activity with insects regarding tulips? Yeah, they don't, they don't really attract pollinators like a zinnia would or an open-centered dahlia um, or even like narcissus or muscari. They're, they don't quite, that's not really their strong suit. <laughs> and just... Another word about it, like when you you said you do arrangements, I, I I take it you sell vases full of you know beautiful different flowers. It, how, how do you market those? I mean, is it all at the CSA or do you go to farmers markets and how does it how, yeah. does it, how do you proceed with that? 
Yeah. So I'm trying to build up my CSA more this year. That's the first year that we're offering it. So um, I'm really excited about that. And the pickup is at Sport Hill Farm on Thursdays, uh, Thursday afternoons. In Easton. So, in Easton. Yep. Yeah, sorry. Uh, so that's really great because uh, Patty, who owns Sport Hill, she just grows the most amazing veggies you could ever want. Um, and so she's been like a great partner to for us to work with. Um, but we also sell flowers at the Fairfield Farmers Market in the summertime. Um, so that runs from June through October, although I'm I really want to convince them to start earlier this year, but we'll see if that actually works. Um, so yeah, and you know, uh, if people follow us on Instagram and stuff like that, they'll side of like we'll do pop-ups from time to time at different places. so. You have a great Instagram page. I do follow you on Instagram. And um, I love the, just seeing the pictures of the flowers has inspired me. And, um, you know, I hope to meet up with you to get some for myself. And, um, you know, I, I, I think you're doing a great job. And I'm, you know, I think it's great. I mean, I'm really obviously stuck on the fact that you're not polluting people's homes with pesticides on these cut flowers I mean you know we have little kids too and but even before that um like who wants to be rubbing their face all over that and I in my day job I um run an organic certified greenhouse certified through Bay State and so I'm very familiar with certified organic even though our farm isn't certified organic we've you know basically are using those same methods. Um, and it, it's really important to us. Um, and it's kind of, it, I think you will find, many people will find with farming that if you, if you think you're the one in control, you're going to be sadly mistaken. And <laughs> any chemical that you use, it may solve like the initial problem, but it's going to create another one on on down the road that's even worse than the one that you were dealing with in the first place. So, um, you know, to use chemicals, just it doesn't make sense in many, many ways. Well, we've been speaking with Miranda Gould, uh, who is the owner of New Petal Flower Farm based in Monroe, Connecticut. Miranda, it's been a really fun conversation. Nice to meet you and good luck with your, uh, your CSA and the whole project and thank you so much for leading the way here with chemical free flowers it's really important and i think you made a great strong case for that here we are at the end of the show my name is richard hill i want to thank uh, laura modlin and steve Mono, vincent k and again miranda gould for joining us today on the organic farm stand we'll see you all again in uh 15th of february very good wow we're going in First, 15th, and again on the 15th. That's pretty uh, unusual. Well, thanks all. Talk to you all soon. Thanks, thanks everybody. Bye-bye. Thank Corn in the fields And listen to the rice When the wind blows across the water King harvest is surely come I work for the youth Cause she's so good to me